I'd invite you now to turn again in our series to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, just to kind of reopen the thoughts regarding what's going on here. I want to remind us that Jesus has come under great accusation during this point in his ministry. Accusations that are illegitimate. If people knew whom they were accusing, they would have dread for their own souls for what they were saying. They were accusing him of being an insubordinate, a rebel, um, a hypocrite. Uh, We saw recently how the accusations were mounting on such a scale that the Pharisees were condemned to death and hell while in this life because they had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, attributing the miracle power of Jesus to satanic power, thus calling him a Satanist. Strong, horrific, heart-hardening, condemning accusations are mounting through this chapter. There's eight of them that I have found, and it leads to chapter 13, which is the shutoff point in Jesus' ministry of clear gospel witness, where he then backs it to parabolic teaching, where only if your heart is open or opening will you really understand and receive the spiritually minded truths that are there. There's a condemnation in Jesus' parabolic ministry saying that time is running out to believe. If you're an unbeliever in the hearing of my voice, believe, open your heart, receive these accusations as rebukes not to do it. Don't be an accuser of Jesus. You say, I would never do something like that. Well, this accusation that we find in the text in front of us is one that is very subtle. I think it's very common in church culture, in big evangelical culture. It's very common in America to accuse Jesus like the Pharisees and scribes here accuse Jesus. They have kind of run out of their harsh accusations the ones that are on the face of things, like, okay, you've, you've just healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, and so you're in rebellion. You know, that's, that's pretty clear. But this accusation is a little bit indirect and not, you know, visible on the surface. They asked Jesus for a sign, and I call this the accusation of calling Jesus a pragmatist. Show us a trick, Jesus. Prove it. You say you're Messiah. Blow us away. We want to we put you on display. We want to see the message of the gospel written in the stars now. And we'll believe. We're on board. They're using flattery. They're using, um, trying to appeal to Jesus as if he could fall into pride. They're doing the same kind of stream of accusation that, Jesus, uh, that Satan himself used against Jesus in the wilderness. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. You've got the authority. You've got the divine right. Do it. It's that kind of uh, satanic approach to Jesus. It's very dangerous, and it's something that we should not let our own selves out of in terms of something that we maybe have done. It's easy to begin to believe Jesus is just a do-gooder in heaven for you, someone that you can just call upon and say, fix this or that, and then I will believe, then I will stretch, then I will bow, then I will yield. No, we yield to the Lordship of Christ for who he is, period, come what may. Remember the half-brothers of Jesus? 
They were raised with Jesus in the home of Mary and Joseph at John 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Listen to the wording here. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So he's being strategic, not going in Judea yet. It's dangerous. Verse 2, now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So there's a feast, there's a pilgrimage to Judea. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. This is all flattery speech. This is all um, a masquerade of faith. This is what people do. Hey, show them what you got. Your, your followers are there. Show off. It says, for no one works in secret, verse 4, if he seeks, his, seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. This is all the half-brothers. I mean, imagine this. I've got, you know, a bunch of boys in my household. I can't imagine them tempting each other. But, I mean, this is just evil. This is evil. This is the, the kind where they're trying to get Jesus killed. They're saying, go to Judea, show off. There's disciples there. Hey, you want to reach the world? And you hear that in the church. Hey, we'll do anything to reach the world for Christ. That's turning Jesus into a pragmatist, a showman, a sideshow. It's not who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. Lord over our lives. Lord over the church. He's Lord over the universe. He's Lord over this world that will both be at points redeemed because the church will be redeemed out of the world, but the world itself will be condemned and then reformed in the new heavens and the new earth. On the cross, when Jesus was butchered and bludgeoned and bleeding and gasping for air, the crowds taunted Jesus in the same way. Be a pragmatist. Just do something that works. That's what pragmatism is. Verse 20, or Matthew 27, 40. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's what you claimed, right? When before you're up on this cross, pinned up there. Now save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Save yourself. If you can do it, do it. That's absolutely 180 out from why Jesus was on the cross. He was there to stay, to not save his physical life, but to give his physical life. Satanic. Save yourself. Come down. Let's interrupt the saving work of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Let's, let's pull you down with pragmatism and fix it with the way we want it fixed. It's an accusation. It's accusing Jesus. It's trying to bring him to that level of being a pragmatist. That's really all you are in my mind. And that's a dangerous place to be. Remember when um, Jesus had healed Lazarus. Jesus had healed Lazarus in uh, in Bethany. And people, it says in uh, John's gospel that people were going to see Jesus. But they were also going to see Lazarus because he had been raised from the dead. He'd been brought back to life. They wanted to see the new improved Lazarus. We want to see your show. We want to see what's going on. And anybody that believes Christianity promises this kind of life is deluded and deceived because you don't understand the world that we live in. We live in a sin-cursed world. I remember the words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 or 4, verse 7. Um, you know, we're treasure in jars of clay. Verse 8, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. This is our life. Here it is, verse 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
For we live, who live, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Yeah, we are called to suffer. We're called to stand as light. We're called to be salty in this world. Not mean, but, but different. We're a preserving agent of salt. We're also creating some, um, you know, some taste for what is so different about you. And it takes suffering to do that. It takes the willingness to take a hit and have someone accuse you of something that's not true. But you don't defend yourself. You defend Christ. You defend truth. You give the word of God with the way you live and the way you respond and in the way you don't respond. We respond for the glory of Christ with gospel mission and ministry in mind. I'm hoping that this is making sense to you. The crowds here were being swayed and persuaded by the scribes and Pharisees who were saying, show us a sign. People get bored in church. I was reading Paul David Tripp on this. He said, we're tempted to esteem new and disrespect old. We're attracted to new ideas instead of ancient truths. We lack patience. The scribes and Pharisees, they were out of tricks. And so they, they moved to flattery. And what they say is repugnant. It almost looks like faith. If you look at verse 38, it says, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. How weird is that, by the way, in the context of the fact that he had just cast the demon out of the demon-oppressed man, just given that man eyes to see. He cured his blindness, cured his inability to speak. He made that man whole. And they're saying, "Um, can you show us a sign? Jesus isn't going to do that. He's not going to fall into that trap. The early church... What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that the grace may abound? Paul was saying, hey, don't be that kind of presumptuous person where you're just going to sin and sin and sin and expect God to fix you and fix things. Don't be presumptuous. Don't be pragmatic. This is a study in hearts. This is a test between people wanting religious signs or pragmatic signs versus the Bible. Ultimately, the greatest sign that's been given us in this day and age is is this right here. Can I just remind you of that? God has given us the sign and the witness, and it's in the word of God. It's the truth. It's the word. It's a sign that only he could give to us. He inspired scripture. He speaks. It's the living word of God. Uh, Jesus is here. He said in Matthew 28, I'm with you always, even into the end of the age. And it is his presence, especially manifest in the third member of the Trinity. You have the Holy Spirit who's here with us, who has inspired the word of God. Jesus speaks to us through the word of God in our daily life as we walk with him as the second member of the Trinity in our life. It's incredible. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. And the truth is alive in our hearts and we need to see that sign, not look for some sort of prosperity gospel, name it, claim it, I want it my way type mindset, even in subtle forms, that's what people do. I'm going to answer this question. Why didn't Jesus give the sign? Why didn't he do it? Why did he not give a sign? I mean, one big idea is we have the word of God, but... Um, Let's just kind of walk through the passage and see what he says as a response to their 
request. Verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Kind of an interesting turn that Jesus makes, right? He's talking to them and then he just goes, Old Testament, minor prophet, Jonah. That's where we're going to be. That's your sign. If you want a sign, let's go back to that ancient story, which he's really saying, I've given you God's word, given you God's word. But number one, the first reason he doesn't give them a sign is they are evil in their motivation. Their rejection of Jesus is manifest in the fact that they don't want the Bible. They don't want to see Jesus for who he is. They don't want, to, they don't want the truth that he is speaking. And so what does he do? He says, you're evil and adulterous, and I'm going to give you the sign that you didn't want. I'm giving you God's word. <laughs> I'm not going to give you a trick. I'm not going to be a sideshow. I'm not going to take the stars and align them right now and write something in the sky. Hey, I really am the Messiah. Because by the way, what would people do if the stars aligned under miracle power? And it said, Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament is the Messiah. What would people say? You know, they would say, scientifically, if you have enough time, if you have enough time, that, the fact that these stars aligned in the way that they did and, and created actual words that could point to a Judeo-Christian ethic. I know, they would talk, they would sound like this too, right? You know, they, there's a, there must have been a trillion more years front-loaded to get us to there, and so that just redates everything, but this is explainable astronomically. I don't think so. But that's what people do. They would just reject it. And he says, you're evil, you're adulterous, you're unfaithful. That's what adultery means here. You're going after pagan idols. You're worshiping the world. You're into the zeitgeist of the culture. You don't want the word of God. You're evil, not good. You're adulterous, not faithful. And you're seeking a sign. You're seeking something other than Jesus. What do people do when they say they want Jesus but don't want Jesus? They make a new Jesus. They mold a new Jesus out of clay and they say, this Jesus is the Jesus that I want. I want a Jesus who will give me things on demand. I want Siri for Jesus. I, I, want, I want something reshaped and refashioned. I want my buddy Jesus, who's with me Jesus, my comfort Jesus. But I don't want a Jesus who is both comforter and king, both uh, empathetic, sympathetic, high priest and accountability, Lord, lion, one who will give wrath to those who do not repent, Jesus. We want the Jesus of Scripture. It's what people need to say. It's wrong what they're doing in their presumption. Their presumption has a deeper sin, and that is the evil of apostasy, of of leaving the faith. Israel is covenant-breaking. This entire generation, it says, no sign will be given it. That it there in verse 39 is the entire generation. It's not just the scribes and Pharisees that are committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If these in this generation do not repent, they likewise will be committing the same sin of apostasy. Nicodemus, if you think about him, he was a Pharisee who met Jesus by evening. John 3, it says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. It says a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. Now, this is him taking a step in faith. This is what I believe. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus was understanding the point behind the sign. 
The sign is not the point. The point is to see Jesus. I'll make it practical in this way. You're not supposed to study the word of God to get smart. You're not supposed to, and it's an intellectual book. You're not supposed to learn Hebrew and Greek if you desire to do that, just to be able to say, I can know, I can translate Hebrew and Greek. You're not supposed to learn the Bible so you can just give a good Bible study. You're not supposed to learn God's word just to raise your family in a moral way. You're supposed to understand the word of God, which is God's sign of himself, his revelation of himself on earth to know God and, and to respond to him in humility for our sins that are revealed and put on display in the mirror reflection of, the, of what the word of God tells us we are and are not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We repent because we see ourselves in the word of God and we see Jesus as our savior. The closer we get to him, the more sinful we see ourselves, but the more we understand the grace of the gospel to cover it all. And Nicodemus was on the way to believing in Jesus at this point because he was attaching the signs as what was validating Jesus for who he claimed to be as Messiah. Nobody will ever see enough signs to truly believe in Jesus unless they are genuinely being drawn in faith. Remember the rich man and Lazarus. You have the rich man who goes to hell. He's in Sheol and you have Lazarus who's safely brought up to heaven, which is represented in Abraham's bosom. And God is speaking uh, through the persona of Abraham and he's interacting with the rich man who is in torment and suffering in hell. And in verse 27 of Luke 16, it says, then I beg you, father, this is the rich man, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them talking about Lazarus, please send him back lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, this is God speaking. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What, what does that mean? Let them hear the truth. Let them hear what Moses and the prophets wrote. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If that resurrection thing happens and Lazarus comes back, they're going to repent. God said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, this is verse 31, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This played out in the early church, 1 Corinthians 1, the first chapter of Corinthians, verse 22. Paul said, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. I mean, think about it. Experiences and sort of sophistry. That's what, that's what inspires people. Wow, this happened. And then they make their theology around it. Wow, can you believe that happened? And that becomes their version of spirituality. Or... That person is so intellectually on it and smart. He told me everything that I need to know for how to cope with and deal with life. You know, that podcaster has really opened my heart. I'm telling you, people are up all night listening and, and just, oh man, I'm listening to the sophistry of the voice and that voice is melodically answering all of my questions. That's spirituality. It's not necessarily God's word unless the podcaster is speaking truth. But just people in Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But listen, what's the answer? But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
Why don't people believe in Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God? Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You have to be someone who is a fool for Christ, someone who is weakened, weakened in their own flesh to be strong. It's a clear rebuke for seeking a sign. That's what Jesus is doing here. People want pragmatism, not the word of God. They want to break from the word of God. And ironically, Jesus gives them a sign. It's not the kind of sign they want, but he gives them Jonah. That's your sign. You want a sign? Go back to Jonah and say, how disrespectful is that? Jonah's just a children's story. No, not exactly. Jonah is is a great story to tell children, but the book of Jonah is about bringing the gospel, Old Testament style, but the gospel of repent and believe on Yahweh for salvation. Both physical salvation, because doom and and gloom is promised to um, the Ninevites, but it's a picture of their repentance and salvation physically and spiritually, as we're going to see here. It's incredible. Uh, Jonah was dated um, back 750 years B.C. during the time of Jeroboam II, 2 Kings 14.25. Some of this is retread from what Nathan uh, taught if you were here at Worship on the Grounds. uh, last time, but uh, anyway, it's a good, it's a great book to learn about God and repentance in. This is a Bible sign. It's a historical book, real time, real place, and people are refusing it. Okay, verse 40, verse 40, read with me. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of Of the earth. So Jesus is tying the gospel together with the account of Jonah. And he's doing it in a very unique way. He's saying Jonah was in the great fish three days and three nights. And the son of man, he's projecting what's going to happen to him. He will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Just as Jonah, historical person, it's a great way to defend the historicity of the Bible. Real person, real time, real place, real fish. And Jesus, real man, fully God, fully man in the heart of the earth. Jonah, he's thrown overboard because he's, he's fleeing Nineveh, going to Tarshish. He's he's uh, he's. He's going into the ocean, thrown into the heart of the sea by the sailors so that the storm will stop. Jesus likewise is thrown into the heart of the earth. An intervention is is given where Jonah is swallowed by a great fish. Jesus calls his own intervention on the world because we're running, fleeing like Jonah was, headlong in sin, full rebellion, and we're rescued because of Jesus' obedience to die on the cross and be buried for three days. And it's the part of three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We know that. This is a Hebrew idiom to say, um, you know, 24-hour periods, three 24-hour periods. Really, it's touching any part of one of the three days, constituted three days in the Hebrew and um, early church um, Jewish mind as well. God's word is the sign. That's point two. So their motive was evil. The second reason that Jesus did not give them the sign that they wanted was God's word is the sign. Jesus is going deep here. He's proving the point of Jonah is the salvation that was given to the Ninevites. The point of the story of Jonah isn't the deliverance of Jonah from the great fish. 
It's not the point. We see this. If you'll turn and look with me at um, Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the last verse of Jonah 1 going into Jonah 2. It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Now, what is he praying for? I want to ask that question as we read through this. Is he praying for physical salvation or spiritual salvation? Verse 2. I called, he's saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice and you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters in and over me take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. By the way, I think that's like the rib cage of the fish, the bars and the seaweed, and there's water inside, even the belly. And he's supernaturally enabled to stay alive in that moment. That is a miracle. That is a sign. If you want to bask in the glory of a miracle, let me show you one. Jesus is saying, just read Jonah in that experience. Says, I went down to the land, the bars closed upon me forever. Verse 6, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. He's at his crisis moment. He's dying. He remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He's indicting himself. Is this a physical salvation or spiritual salvation? Well, any good teacher will say, well, yes, it's both. But, but spiritually, think about it. He's saying, I have forsaken. I ran from you. I was breaking covenant faithfulness with you. I've gone after the vain idols of my own heart. I wanted it my own way. He was the pragmatist. He's like, I'm not going to give the gospel because I don't want those Ninevites who are my sworn enemies to be saved. I'm rebelling against God. How did that work out for him? Verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you for what I have vowed I will pay. He's making good on his covenant. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is spiritual salvation. He's saying, you are my savior. Yes, he's going to be physically saved. And that is demonstrated through the next verse. But it's his heart and covenant faithfulness that's flying in the face of this of Israel that's rejecting the Messiah. They are adulterous. They're covenant breakers. And Jonah is saying, I want to break the covenant. I want to run from you. I don't want to preach the gospel. I don't want these people to be saved. And yet I will make my vow right. I will pay what I owe. I will come to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out, of, out upon the dry land. Raised a lot of kids. have been around a lot of vomit. It's really gross, but gross is a good picture. And I say that not just to be funny, it's gross. What he was going through, his rebellion was gross. It needed to be spewed back up on, on the land. Sometimes recovery is hard. When Jonah cries, salvation belongs to the Lord, he's talking about physical but spiritual salvation. He's willing to preach. Jonah 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I love that. There's redemption it's a good second, you know, second chance saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it 
the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. There it is. There's the sign, the word of the Lord. Now, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, huge city, 120,000 kids at least. Um, the last chapter um, four says, but it could be like 300,000 people there with adults or more. It's like Anchorage uh, sized. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, you have 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth and the greatest of them from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and set in ashes. And he proclaimed and published. He issued a proclamation and published uh, through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed Or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his fierce, turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. And this made Jonah mad, but they were saved. It's funny, Jonah's rebellion, his unwillingness to go preach, him being intercepted, all that does is magnify by contrast Jesus' willingness to go, Jesus' willingness to bring the message, Jesus' willingness to be persecuted, Jesus' willingness to go to the enemies. Who, who's, who are the Ninevites? We're like the Ninevites. We're the enemies. We're the sworn enemies of God. We're an enmity with God. And then the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ is shown in our hearts. And we love Jesus. And we are the the remnant generation that's saved. In Nahum, it says that there's the following generations disbelieved. The Ninevites disbelieved God. They didn't keep following him. It was one generation, but it was a generation that was saved because they believed. They repented And they believed they were saved physically from wrath in that instance, but they were saved spiritually. How do we know? Because we've got Jonah chapter 5 written here, if I can just say that metaphorically, here in Jesus' words. We have more of the story that Jesus is telling about what's going to happen with the Ninevites. This hasn't happened yet. We have brothers and sisters in heaven right now who are Ninevites. We can talk to the Ninevites one day and have supper with them in heaven. But there's a judgment day coming where this generation is going to rise up and condemn. Look at verse 41. It says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. That's point three. Judgment is sure. Why didn't Jesus give the extraordinary sign? One, the motive was evil. It was an evil and adulterous generation that was asking it. Um, Number two, uh, God's word is the sign. He gave them God's word. Give him the miracle sideshow. He gave him God's word. Number three, judgment was sure. Judgment was sure. He's not going to give them a sign when judgment is coming on this people. It's the part that's not recorded in Jonah, but we see it here in Jesus' um, own words and teaching that Nineveh, this generation, will rise up at the judgment. That's the same judgment Jesus is talking about. In verse 36, earlier in the chapter, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account. 
People will be, verse 37, justified. People will be condemned. A good tree and a bad tree. You have this binary dynamic in heaven. You have the saved and the unsaved. You have the sheep and you have the goats. And the generation of Nineveh is going to make this hard um, condemnation. They're credentialed to do it. They might have said you wanted a miracle. You should have wanted um, Jesus. You should have wanted the Messiah. You wanted to be wowed. You should have wanted repentance and faith. You wanted your physical need to be met, but you should have repented over your sin. That might be what the Ninevites will say. Greater accountability um, comes with greater exposure to Christ. We've talked about that a lot. Someone greater. Do you see that in the, in the text? So, uh, it says that, you know, they repented at the preaching of, of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is right there. It means that the Ninevites, they responded to God and God's word through Jonah. And the Israelites are hardening their hearts when they're hearing it straight from Jesus. I think that's what's happening in our culture today. People say, well, Jesus isn't physically here today, so isn't the accountability lessened, not greater? I don't think that's the case. The Holy Spirit is here. He's demonstratively here. He's, you know, his word is here. His word is going out in ubiquity now. It's everywhere. The word of God is, is being streamed through preaching over the internet everywhere. It's like the Gutenberg Press phenomenon in the 21st century where suddenly things can just be you know, pushed and published on an exponential rate that's it's unfathomable. We can't even really comprehend how many um, you know, sort of ways that the Word of God is going out in preaching. Even with communist countries that shut things down on the Internet, there's ways around that. It used to be during the 80s, during the Cold War. Do you remember that? Where... It was, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan. And, you know, Ronald Reagan was saying, you know, let's tear down this wall, you know. And, and the wall fell. And, and suddenly the mission of the church was to publish as many Russian um, Bibles as possible and flood them out so people could read um, God's word in the Russian language for the first time. When the wall was still up, the big um, thing I remember during, uh, you know, late 80s was the idea that people were smuggling Bibles in the trunks of cars and going across the border and, and getting Bibles to people. And it was, why would you give money to this when you could give money towards that movement of Bibles being published? Well, nowadays, the Bible is just out over the internet everywhere. And that's a good thing, but it's also a judgment I think it's a sign of judgment because the more exposure people are, more exposure exposure that's brought to people, the more they're brought to the crossroads of either receiving or rejecting. And when people reject God's word, they watch this. When people reject God's word that reveals Jesus for who He truly is, they're rejecting Jesus. People want to create a Jesus that they want. They say, "I believe in Jesus, but I want Him on my terms, my way, with my descriptions." They want a toothless dog. They want something that can lick them and lick their faces but, and give them comfort. But there's no bite. There's no accountability. There's, there's no lordship. And we bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. So it brings us to um, 
sort of the final point, which is Jesus makes believers wise. Uh, Why doesn't he give a sign? He doesn't give the sign because their motive was evil. God's word is a sign. The sign's already given, and he alludes to it and goes to it, I rather should say. Judgment was sure. And then finally, he makes believers wise. In other words, he brings people to faith in Christ by regeneration. He opens their blind eyes. And he gives a testimony of this, I think, in verse 42. Second story from the Old Testament. It seems odd to me. Out of all the places Jesus could go, he went to the story of Jonah, and then he went to this account where the queen of Sheba, or the queen of the south, meets Solomon. It says, the queen of the south, verse 42, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. It's the same point at the end of verse 42 as 41 But this is being made through the queen of Sheba. Queen of Sheba or queen of um, the Sabaean um, area. You've heard of the Sabaeans, which is modern day Yemen. If you know your geography, it's across the way from uh, Ethiopia. A lot of people will say she was the queen of Ethiopia. Not totally sure one way or the other. We just know the Mediterranean trade routes were there from India. So this woman was very, very wealthy. Probably the most, the most wealthy ruler in the known world at that time. The queen of Seba or Sheba. And um, the Sabaeans, you remember they were the ones that were the attackers on Job's wealth and burning things down in Job chapter 1. Um, it's 1,200 miles south of where Solomon would have been and resided in um, God's land and Israel. And she was curious because she had heard, First Kings 10 and Second Chronicles 9, um, she had heard of Solomon's wealth. And up to this point, my guess is she was unrivaled in her wealth, but through, you know, the, you know, the non-internet communication of the ancient world, she finds out that Solomon has more, and she's very curious. And she's so curious, she needs to see it for herself. And she needs to understand how someone there is wise enough to acquire that kind of wealth. She's not really looking for his wealth. She's looking for how he acquired his wealth. When we think of wealthy people in the world... Um, you know, just the different moguls that are out there that just have billions and billions of dollars. I think a lot of times we're, we're not so intrigued by how much they have, but how they can acquire how much they have. How did you do that? You know, what, what kind of mind does that? I mean, you hear of these different ones and they talk about it and they have little segments on how they think and what their life ethic is like and where they sleep. Some of them hermit, they sleep in little like office buildings and things and they have all this money, but they, you know, there was this one uh, man, I don't remember his name, but he was one of the wealthiest men on the planet at a time in Mexico. And he said, I always have my kids sleep in the same rooms with each other of this modest, small house. What is it that acquires this kind of wealth. Well, 1 Kings 10 is that discussion. Verse 1, Now when the queen of Sheba heard the time, heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She just wanted to know. She came to Jerusalem with a great retinue with camels, bearing spices and much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. And there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. Remember 1 Kings 3, he didn't ask for wealth. He asked for wisdom from God, and God gave it to him. 
And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built and the food, the table, and the seating of, the, of the, his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing as cupbearers and the burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She was blown away. And she said to the king, the report was true. I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and came and my own eyes had seen it. Behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. That's what is blowing her mind. This is God's way of evangelizing the world. I think, you know, both the Ninevites and Queen of Sheba, pagans, are, are, are encountering Yahweh in unique ways. I think uh, this woman was, um, was blessed. Look at verse 9. This is her conversion. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. My guess is that because of this response, she was a believer. There are unbelievers who have of like responses like Nebuchadnezzar and others in the Old Testament. I tend to believe there's parallelism in Jesus' teaching here that that the way that the Ninevites are going to rise up at judgment with this generation, those who had repented, they're going to be the ones credentialed to condemn unbelief. I think the Queen of the South, it says, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. They're both, they're like 200 years different from each other, one in 900 BC, one in 700 uh, BC, and yet... They're, they're both going to be there at that moment condemning the generation. Who? The generation of the Israelites that are rejecting Jesus. This woman had seen God's wisdom. Let me just put it this way. When you witness to somebody and you answer questions about life and why things are going wrong in the world and how things can be made right in the world with the gospel, you're giving God's wisdom to them. You're saying things that people don't, regularly here when you give them the Jesus of the Bible you're telling people about Jesus in a way that they don't otherwise hear about him when you talk about unless you leave father mother sister brother you're not worthy to be my disciple that sounds weird and odd and strange when you say to someone deny yourself take up your cross and follow me leave everything that's odd when you say to somebody, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world to be Tesla, you know, or whoever, or Warren Buffett, you know, to gain the whole world and lose your soul. When you bring things clear in that moment to someone and say, this is what life is about. Life is about submitting to the Lordship of Christ and being rescued from your sin. You are that cracked pot, earthenware vessel with the treasure of the gospel and you're giving a defense for the faith. You've sanctified Jesus as Lord, 1 Peter 3.15. And someone says, wow, that's gold. That's otherworldly. And I'm giving my life to this Jesus. That's what we're called to do. That's, what, that's how Jesus makes people wise. He brings them to saving faith. The Ninevites were unimpressed with the prophet's miracle, I think. They, they didn't really care that he had been barfed up on the beach. The queen was unimpressed by 
Solomon's material wealth. I mean, she was impressed, but she was, by contrast, really impressed with the wisdom. They both were impressed to repent and believe. Jesus is flipping this bait accusation by the scribes and Pharisees and saying, look to the Bible. Jesus is all you need. Answers are all theirs for you to have, and Jesus will meet your need. You don't need a sign. You need Jesus. Are we as bold as Paul to say, like he did in Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent? I'm not saying we should be harsh, but... Just witness understanding that you're, you're coming in the, the name of Jesus with the authority of the word of God behind you. Will you do that? Win people to Jesus. Give them the truth. Watch this. Everybody's like ensnared. They're, they're running in the woods and, they, you know, and then you hear, Chunk! and they've got, they're in a bear trap. And you have the ability with the word of God to, to be that tool that unlocks the snare and lets someone free. That's what we do. That's why we speak the truth and love so people can be set free.